0: Let's read together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insights. You may be seated. May ask the Lord one more time to ask uh, for His blessing. Father, teach us today as we come before You to learn from Your Word. Christ, would You impart within our hearts this truth. Spirit, would You... Again, work um, your power to make these words true in our hearts and in our lives. We humbly ask for your guidance, even to understand, and more importantly, um, more power to live it out. In Christ's name we all pray, amen. Basically, let me explain today's message to you, Um, it's the... It's the foundation, it's the fundamentals, it's the basics of our faith. And here's the basic of our faith. Are you listening up? The basic of our faith, our belief, is that we have a Redeemer. Right? And Redeemer means that we needed to be saved from something. I'm not going to stop looking at Timothy. I'm going to look here your Um, And what he needed to redeem us from was from our sins, because we were slaves of sin. It also teaches us that we have a, a redeem. did I say redeemer? Yeah. And the redeemer is Jesus, right? So the basic truth of our faith is that we are in need of salvation. We needed to be saved from something, to be redeemed from something, and that Christ has come to redeem us for all time. Forgive us of our sins, as today's text tells us. Um, So that's pretty much the truth, the the simple, basic truth today. Now, for the rest of us. So, let me get into today's thing. There's a mantra, right, when it comes to learning new sports. Whether you're learning basketball, football, or even golf. We'll, We'll just, for today's argument, say, consider that a sport. There's a mantra. You must learn the fundamentals, right? It's all about the fundamentals. You must be well-trained in the basics, the principles, the fundamentals. You don't teach an aspiring basketball player to dunk, right, right off the bat. You teach them how to dribble. You teach them how to pass. You teach them proper mechanics of shooting. You teach them correct footing. You don't teach an aspiring football player to spread offense. Right? You start off with, I know, I'm a guy, I'm a big sports thing, so that's all I'm talking about. I don't know who it reaches, but it reached me. <laughs> anyway, you teach them about blocking, you teach them about the, the, the intricate, not the simple system of offense and defense, and then you move on to, you know, um, coverages and such. But if the foundation, the, fir- the 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 fundamentals aren't firmly established in the player, the player will never excel. The classic example, you know, you guys know what's coming, is Tim Tebow. No? Yes, I'm guilty of being part of the cultural bandwagon. But I think it's such a uh, appointment illustration of. Uh, The importance of fundamentals. If you know anything about anything, then you would know that the biggest criticism of Tim Tebow is his passing mechanics, right? He's an NFL quarterback that doesn't know how to pass. (laughs) Essentially, that's what they say. Um, So here's an NFL quarterback who doesn't have the proper fundamental mechanics of throwing a football. Uh, You would think that somewhere along the line, in his, you know, from Pop Warner days to high school to uh, college and on. Someone would say, hey, you're not throwing it right. You know, so that someone would teach him that. Um, and he's a great illustration because as talented and as far along as he has come in the sport, I mean, he's reached the pinnacle, right? He's a starting NFL quarterback. Even he needs to be reminded and trained and tutored in the fundamentals, in the basics of throwing a football, of proper footing, uh, mechanics and such. We also see that unless he gets the fundamentals down, he will never be as successful as he can be as an NFL quarterback. The point is that no one graduates from learning the fundamentals. And that firmly establishing the fundamentals is crucial to future success and advancement. Now I fear that there are many Thibos amongst us, when it comes to our faith many of us have many of us have been thrust into the game and forced to learn as we go when we what we really needed was to be carefully taught the fundamentals of our faith before we even began playing so after years and years of being christian you have a, a glaring deficiency sure you can rebound and drive sure you can dunk and, and play defense but you travel a hell of a lot. <laughs> you uh, double dribble a lot. Um, you foul a lot. You ever play with those people? And they're like, I've been playing basketball all my life. They're like, but you foul, man. You don't know how to play defense, correct? Anyways. And you shoot like Sean Marion. I had to throw that in there. <laughs> and then there's those of us who have been taught the fundamentals, but i have- Play the game so long that we've gotten lazy and it's been a long time since we've worked on them so our dribbling is good but it's not improving our passing is good but never improving our shots good but never improving and then there's a the third class there are those of us who feel we are too good to go back to the fundamentals right Oh, we're going to talk about that again i've heard that so many times i know that already i'm already a good shooter i'm already a good passer I'm already a good dribbler, but in my estimation, all of us, myself included, need to go back to the basics, especially when it comes to our faith. And can I be honest, basics, the word basics is a misnomer, because our words suggest that it is inferior, that it is easy, that it's shallow, that it's elementary, right? That's the kind of word association we have with the word basics. But that cannot be the furthest from the truth. The basics, quote-unquote, of our faith, which is the gospel, it's superior. The gospel is the most difficult thing for us to grasp rightly. The gospel is infinitely rich and complex. And though it can be mistaken to be elementary because even a two-year-old can understand it, it is in no means elementary. It is the expression of God's eternal will. Now think about that. It is a fruit of the contemplation of the infinite mind of God from all of eternity. How can that be elementary? God in His infinite wisdom, with the infinite time He's had, He was thinking of what to do, and what He came up with was the gospel. I think it's prideful of us to even suggest that it's elementary. So today my aim is to draw us back to the fundamentals of our faith, to the foundation of our faith, and simply put, it's redemption. Let's look at our text. In verse 7, it starts off, says, In Him we have redemption through His blood. I want to stop there. I want to focus on in Him and His blood. The first fundamental truth that this passage teaches us is who our Redeemer is. It is none other than Him, right? And it refers back to verse 6, to the previous verse, where it says, The Beloved. You guys see that connection? In Him, referring back to the Beloved. The Beloved is our Redeemer. That is the first fundamental truth that we need to understand is, who our Redeemer is. The word beloved indicates the one who is in the state of being loved by God. Our Redeemer is none other than the one whom God has loved from eternity past and will love into eternity future with the singular passion, Jesus. We won't truly understand the weight of Of what comes next in this passage until we grasp this truth. The eternal story of the love between the Father and Son precedes the narrative of human history. They say love only grows with time. They say love grows with the increasing knowledge of the loveliness of the one you love. They say love grows proportional to the increasing capacity to grow. Or sorry, love grows proportional to the increasing capacity to love. Basically, as your capacity to love increases, your love grows. Now, if all this is true, and I believe it is, and can you begin to imagine the love with which the Eternal Father has for the Son with the span of eternity between them? Can you imagine the love with which the Father has for the Son when the Son's loveliness infinitely increases into all eternity? Can you imagine the love with which the Father has for the Son when the Father's capacity to love is infinite? It is truly an indescribable, unfathomable love with which the Father loves the Son. I can't put those into words. I tried my best. A lot of infinites there, a lot of eternities there. But it's the Father with the infinite capacity to love, loving the Son who is infinitely lovable. And they were loving each other infinitely from all eternity, past, present, future. How great can that love be? It's indescribable, it's unfathomable. But you need to understand that. You need to understand how much the Father loved the Son. Now, let's make it the second part. It says, in Him, we have redemption. Who are the ones that needed to be redeemed? Us. Whatever redemption is, it is clear that we were the ones in need of it. It is also clear that there is only one Redeemer who can redeem us. So how does the Bible define we? What is God's diagnosis of us? There is nothing more fundamental <clears throat> than this to know that we, who we truly are according to God. You see, before we were redeemed, later on in Ephesians, Paul tells us we were dead in our trespasses, in sins in which we once walked. We were following the course of this world. We were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is currently at work in the sons of disobedience. We were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. It says, like the rest of mankind, that's what we were before we were redeemed. We were living in the futility of our minds, darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God, Because of our ignorance. This, my dear friends, is how God's word reflects us back to us. Part and parcel to the gospel is that we were in desperate need of being redeemed, of being saved, of being given a new life because we were dead. That is part of the fundamentals of our faith that we and all humans since Adam and Eve are dead in our sins, that none of us seek righteousness, that none of us have love for God, that though we may comfort ourselves with good works here and there, with good morals here and there, that through and through we are sinners. With the wretched seed of sin embedded in our hearts, that's who we are. So many of us don't understand who have not fully accepted this most fundamental truth of Scripture, we become crippled with self-adulation, with self-motivation, with self-help, as if there is anything good within ourselves to save ourselves. Christians need to brush up on this fundamental truth, or we too will forget who we truly were before God saved us by His grace we may begin to fool ourselves into thinking that there resides in us something inherently good, something inherently valuable. And we may fool ourselves into thinking that we actually deserve God's favor, that we are actually deserving of God's blessing. We begin to say things like this, but that's not fair, God. We begin to say things like, I didn't deserve that thing to happen to me. Or, I deserve better, God. It may not be those words exactly, but it's the same sentiment that creeps up within us. And I think it's because we truly fail to understand this fundamental truth of our faith, who we are. We are sinners absolutely deserving of one thing and one thing only. Punishment and death in His wrath. the fundamental truth of our faith and we need to brush up on that daily right i think brewing in all of our hearts myself included is this self or is this entitlement where you feel like you deserve better where you feel like things should go better it's my right and i think It's a failure to recognize this most fundamental truth. No, it's not. You want to talk about rights? You rightfully deserve. We rightfully deserve His wrath and His punishment. Let's go on to the next part. Redemption through His blood. Now let's kind of study the word redemption. I think... It gives us a lot of insight into what the gospel is. It's very pregnant with ideas that help us understand what truly happened when Christ died for us. So let's study the word redemption. Redemption means to release from captivity. This word was used to refer to paying a ransom in order to release a person from bondage, especially that of slavery. So in the Roman times, in the, the context of Paul's writing this, there were probably over 6 million slaves. And the, the buying and selling of them was a major business. And let's say you had a loved one or someone you care for that was a slave. The only way you could free that person was to purchase that person and to set them free. It cost something to free someone from captivity of slavery. Now this is exactly the way the word was used that Paul uses right here, redemption. In the context of the Roman issue, that's how it was used. You want to redeem a slave? You got to buy him. You got to purchase him. Now this is precisely the idea carried in the New Testament use of the term to represent Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross. He paid the redemption price to buy for himself fallen mankind to set them free from their sin. You see... Every human being since the fall has been born into sin. We are enslaved to sin. We are slaves of sin under total bondage to a nature that is corrupt, evil, and separated from our Creator. No person is spiritually free. No human being is free of sin or free of its consequences the ultimate consequence, the consequence or penalty is death, as Romans 6:23 reminds us. And this is what Jesus says. Jesus said, "Truly truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And Paul points out that every person who has committed sin or every single person has committed sin, he says, there is none righteous, not even one. In the same letter he says, we are all sold into the bondage of sin. and in fact, the whole of creation is enslaved to the corruption of sin. So implicit in the word redemption is this idea that we are slaves of something, that we needed to be redeemed. And what we were slaves to was sin. We were slaves to its consequences, its penalty, its power. So again, sin is man's captor and slave owner. And it demands a price for his release. And the only price is death. Death is a price that had to be paid for a man's redemption from sin. Biblical redemption, therefore, refers to the act of God by which he himself paid as a ransom the price of sin, which was his own life. In Romans, Paul speaks of redemption as our having been freed from sin and becoming slaves of righteousness. In Galatians, he describes redemption in saying that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us out of this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. That Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. And that it was for freedom that Christ set us free Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. In no uncertain terms, the Bible tells us that we were slaves of sin. We were slaves of the curse. Simply put, the price of redemption was the blood of Christ. It cost the blood of the Son of God to buy men back from the slave market of sin now you guys know shedding blood is a figure of speech for death which was the penalty for the price of sin which Christ himself put upon himself to buy you and me back does that make sense that kind of sheds light on what the gospel is right we were slaves of sin and he had to buy us back what did it cost him his death So Christ's own death by the shedding of His blood, that was a substitute for our death. That which we deserve, He took upon Himself. The beloved Savior, though He did not deserve it, took upon Himself the cross. He made payment for what otherwise would have condemned us to death and hell. That's another fundamental truth. Redemption has a lot to tell us about who we are. We were slaves. It tells us a lot about the act of what Christ did. He had to buy us back. And the cost was his own death and his own crucifixion. Now let's look at the next part. So again, we read, In him we have have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, the primary result of redemption for the believer is forgiveness. One of the central salvation truths the both the Old and New Testament is forgiveness. It is also the dearest truth to those of us who have experienced it. At the Last Supper, Jesus explained to the disciples that the cup He then shared with them was the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Redemption brings Forgiveness. Now a lot of behaviorists <clears throat> and those from other schools of psychology maintain that we cannot be blamed for our sin. That it is the fault <clears throat> that it is the fault of our genes. It's in your genes, you can't help it. But do what you do. They place blame on our environments, our parents, or anything else external. But what the Bible makes clear is this. A person's sin is his own fault. And the guilt for it is his own. The honest person who has any understanding of his own heart knows that you are guilty of your sin. Now it may be easy to blame Others, blame your circumstances, blame your genes, blame your parents. But please, own up to this truth. You are responsible for your sin. and You are guilty of it. The gospel does not teach, as some falsely maintain, that men have no sin or guilt, but rather that Christ will take away both the sin and the guilt of those who trust in him. As Paul says in Acts, Through Him, Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through Him, everyone who believes is freed from all things. Now, it's one of the greatest holidays of Israel. Yom Kippur, right? Passover. It's, It's the day of... Sorry, it's not Passover. It's the day of atonement. Yom Kippur. It's the day where, in Scripture, the high priest will gather all the people of Israel. Right? So all the people of Israel will come. The high priest would choose for himself two unblemished goats. One they will kill on the spot. Right? As a sacrifice. A symbol of blood to the Lord to cleanse them of their sin. And on the other goat, it's the most interesting thing that they do to this goat. The other goat they bring upon himself. And the high priest goes before all the people. The high priest lays his hand on the head of the goat. Right? and he prays and he says upon this goat may be all the sins of the people throughout this past year. Right? So this goat, unblemished goat has now become represented or representative of all the sins of the people throughout that year. And then they take the goat into the furthest wilderness where it will never find its way back to kind of symbolize that's how God forgives our sins. Mm -hmm. Let it go, never to come back. That's where we get the word scapegoat, right? Where you place all the blame on an innocent goat and then you throw them out. In symbol, this act was done to show that the sins of the people went with the goat never to return to them again. But that enactment, beautiful and as meaningful as it was, did not actually remove the people's sins. And they knew that. It was but a picture of what God Himself in Christ could do. The word forgiveness in the Greek, it basically means to send away. Used as a legal term, it meant to repay or cancel a debt or to grant a pardon. Through the shedding of His own blood, Jesus Christ actually took the sins of the world upon him like the goat, and he carried them an infinite distance away from where they can never return. That is the extent of the forgiveness of our trespasses. That's a fundamental truth. Sometimes we think about God forgiving us, and we think of how we forgive people, and we kind of think that's how God forgives us. You see, I don't know about you, but me, sometimes when I forgive others, it's not really forgiving. Right? It's, I'll forgive, but I'll never forget. Right? I'm going to bring this up sometime. It's another weapon that you can kind of bring against people. We seldom experience forgiving others fully in our own lives. Agreed? There's always remnants of bitterness. There's always... uh, uh, a difficulty in, in fully forgiving someone. And we apply that to God. But what this teaches us is that when God forgives, Christ takes all of our sins upon his head. And he takes our sins to an infinite distance away where it can never return to us. That's how God forgives. It is really tragic that many Christians are depressed about their shortcomings and wrongdoing, thinking, that, thinking and acting as if God still holds their sin against them. Do you ever feel that way sometimes? where you still feel like God holds it against you? Forgetting that because God has taken our sins upon Himself, that we are separated from those sins, as Psalms one hundred three twelve tells us, as far as the east is from the west. We forget that God's promised through Isaiah that one day He would wipe away the transgressions of believers like a thick cloud, and He would move our sins like a heavy mist. And He calls us to return to Him, for I have redeemed you, He says. In the Jewish mind, um, east from the west—that's—that means infinitely. The distance is infinite. I hope you understand that when God has forgiven you, he has forgiven you you infinitely. Never to bring it back again. Micah 7:18 through 19 says this. Who is a god like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression transgression for the remnant of his iner- inheritance? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. To the ancient Israel mind, the depths of the sea was an infinite distance. So for them to say that God treads iniquities upon His feet and He casts it into the depths of the sea means He will forget it and forgive it fully. I hope that fundamental truth will free us to understand with what forgiveness God has forgiven us in Christ. And to finish this passage up, it says, According to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us, God's grace, like His love, holiness, power, and all His other attributes, is boundless. It is far beyond our ability to comprehend or describe. Yet we know that it is according to the riches of the infinite grace that He provides forgiveness. We need never worry that our sin will outstrip God's gracious forgiveness. Paul says, wherein sin increase, grace abounded all the more. Our Heavenly Father does not simply give us just enough forgiveness that will barely cover our sins if we are careful not to overdo it, as if there's a limit to His forgiveness. We cannot sin beyond God's grace, because as wicked and extensive as our sins might be or become, they will never approach the greatness of His grace. His forgiveness is infinite and He lavishes it without measure upon those who trust in His Son. We therefore can only we therefore not only can enjoy future glory with God but present fellowship with Him as well. There is no sin you can commit that is greater than His grace. Take that truth to the bank. Think about it. Meditate on it. There is no sin that is greater than His grace. There is no sin that is greater than His grace. Meaning in Christ, there is no sin too great that He cannot forgive you. And forgive infinitely. So no matter where you are on your Christian journey, you must remember it always begins and ends with the gospel. You know, when I was a young seminarian, I was about 21. I was so hungry for insight, so thirsty for profound truths. You know, I was always looking for the mind-boggling, the (laughs) mind-blowing truths. For earth shattering stuff. That's my attitude when I went into seminary. But all I would get day after day in this in this first class that we had to take, day after day, was the same lesson from this eighty year old professor who had been a Christian before my mom was even born. Which is kind of crazy, right? That means he was a Christian before my conception. Day after day after day, what he would talk about was redemption. He would talk about the Redeemer. He would talk about how we have been redeemed. Day after day after day. And I was like, where's the profound truth that I wanted to learn? Where's the things that would blow my mind away? Every day I felt like I was being hit over the head over and over again with elementary truths, with inferior knowledge, with simple stuff. Guys, don't be like that 21-year-old punk who thought he moved on from the gospel to greater and deeper knowledge. Be like that 80-year-old man who was swimming deeply in the experiential knowledge of the gospel that should and must grow even deeper as you walk longer with the Lord. Redemption meant more to him the more he grew in his experiential knowledge of a holy God. Redemption meant more to him the more aware he became of who he truly was without God. Redemption meant more and more to him as he began to grasp more and more just how lovely jesus truly is how could god redeem us who are so undeserving with the death of jesus who is so good so glorious so lovely so pure so undeserving to die have you guys seen that picture it's usually on gospel tracks There's a picture of god and us and there's like a like a chasm and then the only thing that kind of bridges the chasm is a cross now i, I think it's a really good picture but here's another twist to the picture, which I think this 8 year old man who's been walking the faith was experiencing. You see those pictures, and the chasm doesn't seem very big, right? On one side is who we are, and the other side is who God is. You see, as your understanding of God's holiness grows, guess what else grows? Your understanding of that chasm. As your understanding of who you are, as you become more and more in tune with how sinful you are, through and through to your core, guess what else grows? The chasm. So as you learn who you are more, as Scripture teaches you, as you learn more who God is experientially, His holiness, is, His righteousness, the chasm becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And you finally understand what it costs for Christ to die, to bridge That chasm. So the fundamental today is this: know who God is, know who you are, and know Him who who died that we may now have a relationship with God. It's the simplest of truths, right? It's redemption. It's about the Redeemer. But again, I hope you will learn as you grow older and older, to swim in the deep waters of this not basic truth, but the most profoundest of all truths, the richest of all truths, the deepest, most God-glorifying truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we have worldly examples in other fields where the failure to excel or the failure to have a firm foundation upon fundamentals, it leads to unsuccessful careers, it leads to, Lord Father, just an unfruitful um, life. And Lord God, it is so much more true when it comes to our faith. If we miss the fundamentals of the gospel, if we are not firmly built upon the firm foundation of the truth of the gospel, Father, we will crumble. We will lose sight of who we are in Christ. So I pray, Lord God, that you may build us from bottom up and may the bottom be the solid bedrock of the gospel. The true gospel of who God is, who we are, and what Christ has done for us. I pray for your blessings upon your people. And to enrich us and to make us swim ever more deeply into this truth of the gospel. In Christ's name we all pray. Amen.